Amazing grace, how sweet the sound, that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. Whether or not you're religious, you've probably heard of the song Amazing Grace. It's one of those Christian hymns that just about everyone has heard, or at least heard of, at some point. It was first published in 1779 by John Newton. Although John was a Christian when he wrote the song, he wasn't always religious. His mother was, though, so his early childhood saw religion. Sadly, his mother died when he was just six years old. When he was just 11 years old, John began his career at sea when he joined his father as an apprentice. By his early 20s, John was working at one of the more popular occupations on the high seas at the time, slave trading. It wasn't an easy life, and any time John had a near-death experience, he would become more religious. Then, after that experience passed, he would revert to his profane ways. In fact, the captain of the ship he worked on, called the Greyhound, said John was one of the most profane men he'd ever met. For the captain of a slave ship, that's saying something. All of this changed in March of 1748 when the Greyhound was in a violent storm. It was another near-death experience, and once again the now 23-year-old John turned religious as he asked God to save them. This storm was the turning point in John's life. While he continued to be a slave runner until 1755, he grew increasingly regretful of the direction his life was going. John wrote Amazing Grace based on such life experiences. After leaving his old life of slave trading behind, John was ordained by the Church of England in 1764, and Amazing Grace was first published in 1779. In the movie called Amazing Grace, John Newton is portrayed by Albert Finney, and while you may think the movie is about John's life, it's not. Instead, it's about a man who was perhaps the first to be influenced by John's moving life story and the song. It's about a man who was perhaps the single most influential in the abolishment of slavery in Britain. I'm Dan Lefebvre, and this is Based on a True Story. Before we jump into today's story, I wanted to take a few moments to chat about Patreon. If you're not familiar with Patreon, it's a third-party website that lets you support content creators like me. If you're enjoying this show and want to help me pay for the coffee that I drink while I'm writing and recording the show, you can do that over at patreon.com slash based on a true story podcast. There, you can offer whatever you can from a dollar a month all the way to a million if you really want. But of course, I want to give all my patrons a little bit extra to thank you. So I'll give you a peek behind the creation of each episode, as well as an exclusive first look at what the episode is next week. If you've listened to this show before, you'll know that we have quite a few spoilers at times. And if you want to make sure you can watch the movie before listening to the episode, you can get this exclusive peek over at patreon.com slash based on a true story podcast. Once again, that's patreon.com slash based on a true story podcast, all one word. I'll make sure to put a link to that in the show notes. And now, let's compare history with Hollywood's version of Amazing Grace.
although John Newton was the one to write the song Amazing Grace, the movie tells the story of William Wilberforce, who's played by Eoin Gruffydd. If you've never heard his name before, don't worry, you're not alone. William was born on August 24, 1759, after John Newton had already left the slave trade. William gained his fortune from his grandfather and uncle, who both passed when he was young and left him with quite an inheritance. As he grew, he earned a reputation for using his money to be kind to those less fortunate. After attending college at St. John's, Cambridge, he decided not to pursue a life in business. Instead, at the age of 21, William ran for office in the general election of 1780 as a representative for his hometown of Hull. The movie begins in a scene where William meets a woman by the name of Barbara Spooner. We find out neither William or Barbara knew about their true purpose or why they're summoned to the restaurant. The purpose was to meet each other. It was a matchmaking by mutual friends Henry and Marianne Thornton. In the movie, Henry Thornton is played by Nicholas Farrell and his wife Marianne is played by Sylvestre Letuzel. This matchmaking effort was true, and although the real Henry Thornton was a close friend of William's, he wasn't the one who introduced William and Barbara to each other. It was another friend of William's, Thomas Babington. And since the character of Babington is not in the film, maybe that's why they omitted this little detail and had Henry's character fill the matchmaking role. After this brief introduction, the movie flashes back to just after William started his political career. Although the movie doesn't really mention an exact year here, it simply states 15 years earlier. We know from history that William and Barbara met on April 15, 1797, so 15 years before that would be 1782, two years after William began his career in politics. Here is where we meet some more characters that will play a big role in the film, perhaps most notably is William Pitt, who's played by Benedict Cumberbatch. Although the two Williams had passed at Cambridge, they never really became friends until after William Wilberforce started to run for public office. In the movie, they used the name Wilbur to talk about William Wilberforce and Pitt for William Pitt. While we don't know if this is how the two friends referred to each other, since they have the same first name, it wouldn't surprise me. So for the sake of clarity in this episode, I'll do the same thing. We're also introduced to the song Amazing Grace for the first time as Wilbur sings it in front of a rowdy crowd. That background element of the movie with William having a good singing voice is true. His good voice was something he'd always captivated people with. In the movie, Wilbur becomes a Christian and starts battling with whether or not he should continue his political career or drop out and follow a calling in the Christian church. Here is when we're introduced to some other important characters, Thomas Clarkson and Olauda Equiano. In the film, Thomas is played by Rufus Sewell, and Olauda is portrayed by Yuso Endor. Thomas has started a society, and together with Olauda, they convince Wilbur that they can offer a solution where he can both serve in a public office and do God's work. That solution? Abolish the slave trade. While we don't know the specifics of how this conversation went down, the basic gist of it is true. Wilbur became a Christian in 1784 after reading a book by William Law called A Serious Call to a Devout and Holy Life. It seems William was a popular name at the time. After becoming a Christian, Wilbur was seriously considering dropping out of public office. So while the gist may be true, the timeline is stretched. 
we learned that the film's flashback started in 1782, and while a few events passed, it doesn't really seem like long before Thomas and Olauda come into the picture. In truth, Thomas didn't start his attempts to abolish the slave trade until 1787 when he formed the aptly named Society for the Abolition of the Slave Trade. Henry Thornton was one of the early supporters of Thomas's society, so it's likely that he was the connection to Wilbur, who joined the cause that same year. I'm sure it's no surprise that I believe we can learn from history, and that includes my own personal history too. You know how your phone will remind you of photos that you took on this day a few years ago? Well, I just had one pop up and it reminded me of a time a few years ago when my daughter and I were heading out on a four hour drive to a state park. And it couldn't have been more like 10 minutes into the drive when my check engine light turned on and my car just started shaking really, really bad. Needless to say, we ended up spending the rest of the day at the mechanic instead of the park. Not only was that day ruined, but all of a sudden, I had a huge unexpected bill to figure out how to pay. And I really wish I had known about today's sponsor then because that would have relieved a lot of stress. Earn In helps alleviate financial anxiety by giving you access to your pay as you work instead of waiting for the next paycheck. You can get up to $100 a day or up to $750 per pay period. Download Earn In today, spelled E-A-R-N-I-N in the Google Play or Apple App Store. When you download the Earn In app, type in True Story under podcast when you sign up, and it'll really help the show. True Story under podcast. Earn In is a financial technology company, not a bank, subject to your available earnings, daily max, pay period max, and location. See earnin.com slash TOS for details. Bank products are issued by Evolve Bank & Trust, member FDIC. Thanks, Earn In. So the flashback in the film started in 1782, but in truth, Wilbert didn't become a Christian until 1784, and Thomas didn't start his abolitionist movement until 1787. That's how the timeline is stretched in the movie. Here, the movie does bring in John Newton, the slave ship captain turned priest who wrote the hymn after which the movie is named. In the movie, it's John who convinces Wilbur to stay in politics and fight the slave trade. Again, we don't know the exact specifics of the entire conversation, but we do know that this is true as well. According to an article on BBC's website, John told Wilbur, quote, God has raised you up for the good of the church and the good of the nation. Maintain your friendship with Pitt, continue in Parliament. Who knows that but for such a time as this, God has brought you into public life and has a purpose for you, end quote. After Wilbur chats with Thomas to tell him he'll propose a bill in support of the abolitionist movement, the movie jumps forward again to, quote, the present time, end quote, and we see Wilbur and Barbara laughing as Henry and Marianne look on. They're obviously still attempting to push their matchmaking on Wilbur and Barbara. Since the movie doesn't give specific dates, there's no way to know if their timeline is accurate, but again, the gist is pretty close. As we already learned, William Wilberforce and Barbara Spooner didn't meet until April 15, 1797. The two were married on May 30, 1797. So it seems it was love at first sight for the happy couple, and a quick marriage followed. 
So while it's possible the events in the movie happened between April and May, I would speculate it didn't, and the timeline was altered a bit for the film. Still, the basic gist is there. After this happens in the film, we hear Wilbur make his first speech in Parliament against the slave trade. In truth, Wilbur made his first speech against the trade on May 12, 1789. It was a speech that lasted three and a half hours. And while the movie doesn't make any mention of this, his speech was not the first time this topic was brought up. The first time it was brought up was one year earlier, in May of 1788, by Lord Charles Fox. In the movie, Lord Fox is played by Michael Gambon. In his 1788 speech, Lord Fox denounced the slave trade and said it needed to be destroyed. After this, William Dolbin, who's played by Nicholas Day in the movie, proposed a bill to regulate the slave trade. The House of Lords rejected the proposal and wouldn't even put it to a vote. But Pitt, who was Prime Minister at this point, threatened to resign. So they put it to a vote and it passed 56 to 5. Of course, this was only to regulate the conditions on board the slave ships, and it's highly unlikely that any of the regulations were even kept, but none of this was covered in the movie. As a quick side note, the William Pitt in the movie that's referred to by historians as William Pitt the Younger and his father, William Pitt the Elder, is the namesake for the city of Pittsburgh in Pennsylvania. In the film, Wilbur continues to make his case against the slave trade. Together with Thomas and other members of society, Wilbur goes about collecting evidence against the slave trade. In the film, this is turned into a petition with hundreds of thousands of signatures as the proof of the horrible conditions on board the slave ships. There's a great gasp that arises from the members of parliament as the massive parchment is unraveled across the entire floor. The details are a bit different, but yet again, the gist is there. It was Thomas Clarkson who personally traveled over 7,000 miles around the United Kingdom to research what was actually happening on slave ships. And this wasn't a signed petition that was rolled across the floor. All of this evidence was given to Wilbur, and that's what he presented in his first speech to Parliament in 1789. Presenting all of this evidence is why his speech was three and a half hours long. This isn't mentioned in the movie, but one of the slave ship's captains told Thomas, quote, I'd rather live on bread and water and tell what I know of the slave trade than live in the greatest affluence and withhold it, end quote. And the moment where Lord Charles Fox steps out to sign the petition probably wouldn't have caused the ruckus it did in the movie. If you remember, it was he who first proposed abolishing the slave trade a year before. After all this, the movie finally mentions the marriage between Wilbur and Barbara. The movie is nearly over, and the couple that had met just a month before they were wed finally say their vows on screen. So although the movie does make it seem like this is happening right after Barbara spent the night with Wilbur, I still think this timeline was a bit stretched. But at least they got it right when Ian Gruffydd's version of Wilbur says, quote, Barbara and I have discovered we're prone to impatient and rash decisions, end quote. After their marriage, the movie explains a clever scheme that Thomas and Wilbur bring to Pitt as he's playing golf. Essentially, they're going to take advantage of the growing rebellion in the American colonies and try to pass a bill that will remove the protection from ships flying the American flag. According to the film, 80% of the slave ships coming out of the West Indies are flying American flags so they don't get fired on by privateers. 
There's conflicting reports as to whether or not this scheme was ever proposed by Thomas, Wilbur, and the abolitionists. But the movie doesn't give much context to this, and since it's possible it happened, let's set a bit of context to the scheme. If you remember from history class, although they didn't happen to be officially at war at the time, the French and English have had wars going back through most of known history. At the time of the movie, the latest conflict was the War of the Spanish Succession, which saw France and England on opposite sides of the war in 1714. Needless to say, in the late 1700s, there was still a lot of tension between the French and the English. This tension was something privateers turned into a living. Privateers are ships owned by private citizens. They're not military, but they use their ships to turn war into profit. Think of them like a private security firm. A country would allow privateers to board and pillage ships of their enemies. Since it wasn't their military, it wasn't technically war, but it didn't help the tensions ease at all. To avoid being boarded by French privateers, British ships coming from the West Indies, that's what we now refer to as the Caribbean back across the ocean, would fly the American flag. Since the French liked the fact that the Americans were rebelling against the British, they would not attack their ships. So the scheme was to remove the protection from the British government for ships flying an American flag. That meant British privateers would legally be allowed to board and pillage ships with an American flag. According to the film, that's about 80% of the slave ships, so it would make a significant dent in the slave trade. Again, there's conflicting reports about this, but many historians think it's highly likely that this was proposed. And it makes sense. And it was a sneaky way of using the anti-war sentiment in Britain against the Americans who were revolting as a means to an end in the abolitionist movement. But whether or not it was proposed, what we do know is that scheme did not come to fruition. The movie doesn't mention this, but on April 18, 1791, Wilbur introduced another bill to abolish slave trade. Pitt and Lord Vox were some of the principal supporters of the bill. But the slave trade was a huge part of the British economy, so the bill was defeated the following day by a vote of 163 to 88. Just to give you an idea of what they were up against, according to a great article over at BBC's website, the slave trade in Britain at the time was comparable to the IT or housing industries today. It was huge, and it made a lot of very powerful people very, very wealthy. And you and I both know how eager people in power are to give up that power and wealth for moral reasons. Then, in 1796, Wilbur proposed another bill to abolish the slave trade. This time, the results were devastating. The timing of the vote happened to occur when a new opera hit London, and about a dozen of the members in Parliament, or MPs, were either at the opera or just out of town. This vote lost by just four votes. Thomas Clarkson was devastated. We have documentation of something Thomas wrote in his diary after the vote. Quote, to have all our endeavors blasted by the vote of a single night is both vexatious and discouraging, end quote. After this vote, Thomas decided to take a break. Everything he had worked for since forming the society in 1787, almost an entire decade of his life, and he was so close. But it didn't happen because some of those voting were at the opera. 
he had to question their priorities. And after such a devastating blow, it's only human to wonder if you're fighting a battle that you'll never win. Thomas left the abolitionist movement he helped start and struggled to build, and he stayed away for eight years. He returned in 1804 with a new vigor. He was determined and started by doing what he had done before. He toured the United Kingdom and gathered damning evidence against the slave trade, evidence that Parliament couldn't turn away. On May 30, 1804, Wilbur introduced another abolition bill. It languished there for months without even going for a vote. Many of the supporters he could count on were on holiday, and he feared the bill would easily be defeated. So he waited to put it up to a vote until the following year. It was defeated again, this time by seven votes. The next year, 1806, the King George III approached a man who was a huge help in the fight against the slave trade, Lord William Grenville, and invited him to restructure the Whig political party with new leadership. Lord Grenville took advantage of this and put others with the same view on the slave trade in place. Lord Fox took advantage of this almost immediately and proposed a bill to ban the slave trade in any colonies captured by the United Kingdom. He was nibbling at the edges, taking victories where he could, but also getting a sense for how the new people in power would affect voting on the slave trade. This bill passed 114 to 15. Now the next step was to get the whole of the United Kingdom to abolish the slave trade. Toward the end of the movie, it picks up the pace of the story a bit. John Newton gets old and goes blind. And at the very end of the movie, a vote is taken. The result is 283 to 16 in favor of abolishing the slave trade. As you can probably guess by now, the gist of this is all true, even if there are details that have been altered a bit or skipped over. The first detail that isn't mentioned in the movie is the death of Lord Charles Fox, he passed away at only age 57 on September 13, 1806. Sadly, the fight that he started by proposing the abolition of the slave trade in 1788 was a fight he would never see come to fruition. Just months after his death in January of 1807, Wilbur proposed a bill to abolish the slave trade yet again. And this time, just like in the movie, it passed. And the voting numbers were correct in the film too. 283 votes to 16. The slave trade was officially abolished. According to the bill, any captain who continued trading slaves were subject to a fine of 100 pounds for each and every slave found on board. With many slave ships holding between three to 600 slaves at a time, you can start to do the math on the numbers. The movie ends here, but this is not the end of our story. Two months after the bill passed in March of 1807, the United States passed their own abolishment of the slave trade in the Atlantic. It wasn't an abolishment of slavery overall, but the country that had just recently broken free of the British government had certainly been influenced by the passing of the bill in Parliament. A few months later, the author of the hymn Amazing Grace, John Newton, passed away. He died at the age of 82 on December 21st, 1807. While the movie doesn't mention this, Wilbur wasn't trying to abolish slavery as a whole, just the slave trade. In fact, 
after the slave trade was abolished, a man by the name of Thomas Buxton took up the charge to try to abolish slavery as a whole. Wilbur opposed this. He published a pamphlet in 1807 saying, quote, it would be wrong to emancipate the slaves. To grant freedom to them immediately would be to ensure not only their master's ruin, but their own. They must first be trained and educated for freedom, end quote. So the slave trade may have been abolished, but slavery in the United Kingdom was still legal. There was still money to be made. As is often the case, just making something illegal doesn't stop people from trying to skirt around the law. It became common practice for slave ship captains who are still trying to continue transporting slaves to try to lessen their fine when they saw a British military ship on the horizon. Sadly, this meant throwing slaves off the side of the ship into the ocean. It was horrific and surely not what Wilbur had intended at all with the bill. But even though Wilbur didn't want to abolish slavery right away, that was his eventual goal. So he continued his work, but sadly, not for long. Throughout the movie, there's constant points where we see Wilbur's health isn't the greatest. And this is true. After what amounted to his life's work was achieved, it didn't take long for his already poor health to continue to decline. By 1812, Wilbur was forced to resign his seat in Parliament due to poor health. He still tried to stay in Parliament, and he actually took another seat that required a lot less work. From this seat, he introduced bills that would help abolish slavery by making the importation of slavery illegal. He was trying to take a slower approach to easing the United Kingdom that relied so heavily on slaves to getting rid of them. But this too soon proved to be too much. He started to lose his eyesight in the 1820s and made his last speeches to the House of Commons in Parliament in 1824. He finally left Parliament for good in 1825. His final public appearance was in April of 1833 when he made an anti-slavery speech in Kent. In May, a bill for the abolishment of slavery was introduced in Parliament. On July 26, 1833, Parliament gathered to hear a third reading of the anti-slavery bill officially known as the Slavery Abolition Act. According to William Haig, who wrote a biography on William Wilberforce, after this reading, Wilbur received an update on the anti-slavery bill that was in Parliament. As part of this update, he was made aware of concessions by members of Parliament that guaranteed the bill would pass. Three days later, on January 29, 1833, William Wilberforce died at the age of 73 from a bout of influenza that he had been fighting for months. On August 28, 1833, the Slavery Abolition Act received royal assent and officially banned slavery in the United Kingdom. This episode of Based on a True Story was written and produced by me, Dan Lefebvre. While the movie may have had a few things missing, changed, or altered, overall, the movie was a pretty good accounting of the life and events of the man who dedicated his life to breaking down the slave trade that ultimately led to slavery as a whole being abolished in the United Kingdom. If you want to learn more about the life of William Wilberforce, I'd recommend the book that I just mentioned toward the end of the episode by William Haig called William Wilberforce, 
the life of the great anti-slave trade campaigner. As an added bonus, you'll learn about the crazy amount of people named William in the United Kingdom at the time. Thanks for listening to the Based on a True Story podcast. As we're nearing the holiday travel season, I'd like to ask you to do a favor. If you're a fan of the show, you can really help spread the word of the show by recommending it to your family and friends as you see them this holiday season. Maybe share your favorite episode or subscribe them to the show on their phone, with their permission, of course. No matter the genre, we've probably got a show covering it. You can find even more episodes ranging from comedy and drama to true crime, war, and sports over at the show's home on the web at basedonatruestorypodcast.com. You can learn more about all of our episodes and even some of the movies that aren't based on enough of a true story to warrant a full episode over on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash basedonatruestorypodcast. And finally, if you want to get in touch with me directly, I really hope that you do. I want to hear your thoughts on the life of William Wilberforce and the movie Amazing Grace. You can find me on Twitter at Dan Lefebvre, D-A-N-L-E-F-E-B. Until next week, thanks for listening.